21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Yeah, I think that starting my own business after managing the workload in a corporate environment is very different. What's interesting to me, and and some things you know, and some things you think you know, and some things you don't know, but in my career prior to starting my own business, I managed thousands of people. I had chiefs of staff, heads of PR, head of technology, um, loved it, super interesting, loved every moment of it. Now that I work for myself, I'm the chief of everything. I'm the chief of making copies, printing, doing my own billing, uh, booking my own clients, scheduling, PR, marketing, and I love it. It's interesting, but it's also really different. And how I think about my day and what I do. Um, it's something I, I wanted to do and I'm enjoying it. Okay, let's go more into different. So day, tasks, what else? Well, one of the funny things, when I when I started, I realized I really missed having the technology team and the legal team. Because those are people that you call on all the time. Like, this is not working or I need to do something differently. I always had a full technology team. I now am doing everything. Or a legal team, you know, when I wanted advice on a contract or advice on the deal structure, um, I now have my own personal attorney, just like my own personal accountant, but there's just my, my new world of working for myself is having all of my advisors be also in their own businesses. And so they've become, um, my team, if you will, in a very different way than when you're in a company. And so, uh, and the, the depth of the experience inside a company is, is huge. There's tons of attorneys to work with and tons of technology people. And here I, I select what's right for this stage of my my career, which are individual contracts with clients. Just it's a different. The day is really different. Like I said, it's fun, but it's it's very um, uh, hands on now. Why such a big change after so many years in global world? Is it about uh, work life balance? What what are the reasons? Oh, I think there are a few. Uh, one. Is I always wanted to write a book. That was one thing I always wanted to do. I always wanted to participate in what's happening in the Bay Area in terms of the innovation, startup culture. And while you can at a certain level in a large corporation, many things you can't. So for years and years and years, I was asked to go on boards or to advise some of these CEOs, and I really couldn't. It would it would be a conflict. Um, so that's one. Two, writing the book, I, I wanted to be able to write it and have it just be my voice, not go through a bunch of corporate attorneys or um, have a conflict between my job and if someone asked me to speak on the book. And the book has really become almost a way to mentor at scale, which I have enjoyed immensely with all ages, all um, parts of one's life or career, which I think originally fit CEO, I had thought, oh, CEOs will love it. In fact, everyone seems to love it. And after we wrote it, uh, we came up with the subtitle of Be the Leader of Your Life because it so applies that each person is the CEO of their own life. So I think both to, to get, so those are the things that interested me. 
um, where I was in my career was I had done everything. I'd been the president, I'd been the CEO, I'd been the chairman. I had achieved all these exciting roles and enjoyed them, but I was on an airplane um, 250,000 miles a year. I was traveling three out of every four weeks. I was not home as much as I would like to be. And I think that just gets tiring after a while. You're saying like when you start off a business, um, what amount of balance of your time are you really in a risk on zone versus a risk off zone, red or green, uh, out of your comfort zone or in your comfort zone? My guess is, uh, at least for me, I can speak from my experience, I can speak from a lot of my clients' experience as startup CEOs that Early on, you're going to be much more in a red zone, uh, maybe orange, depending on how many startups you've had before. Okay, so it's going to be orange or red. If you if you started other businesses, it's probably more orange than red. If it's your first time starting a business, it's probably more red. And what I mean by that red or orange zone is your level of like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm doing, self doubt, um, little fear, like imposter syndrome. There's just a lot of things that every human being goes through when they do something brand new it's part of the process i mean maybe there's some rare exceptions out there that they do something brand new and jump off a cliff and they're not scared but uh, they should be and that's too risky right if they think they're in the green zone and they're really in the red zone that's super dangerous so i think it's good to feel in the red or orange zone because they're signaling to you risk that's important so that you're aware of what you're doing that you're taking on risk it could be financial risk it could be reputational risk and then you decide how to manage those risks so that you've almost decided your risk appetite if you will well for instance um for me when i started rmk group llc I knew I wanted to advise startup CEOs, but I didn't know yet, would I be better for a pure startup seed, you know, didn't even have their MVP product out there, but they had the idea. In my head, I was going to be better for a much further along startup, like Series D or, you know, uh, already fully making revenue, product already launched. Interestingly, I have clients in all stages and I've enjoyed all. I, if you had asked me when I started, I would have thought I had to be at the later stage and I had to be always with people that had a certain scale and size, which is true you, that there's a big value of my experience to those scaling businesses and going international. And if you're scaling and going international, you're of a certain size. What I've been pleasantly surprised by, and I'm glad I went into a red zone, is I didn't think I would be as great for a total, total startup, but some of the venture capitalists who uh, refer me clients wanted me to work with their total startups. And that's been fantastic um, for the ones that uh, really do know what they want to do and can can leverage me. So I'd say the red zone that I thought would be red became orange. The green zone wasn't so green because it's new issues. So I think you, you move in and out of them, but just have an open, agile mindset to to try out all the different things. So if that's orange, I guess it's trying a lot of different things to make your business where you want to go. So 
being alive in corporate America. Um, well, I, I come into, I used to come into work every day. I have a, a real positive mindset, which is I get to be here. I don't have to be here. I choose to be here. And the moment I would ever have a mindset of I have to be here, then I'm, I'm not alive because I'm not free. So I approach all work as being totally free and then I'm alive. So when, so whenever someone at work would tell me they were burnt out or you know, the man or the woman or the boss or the whatever, that people would then make themselves a victim. I, I'm not a victim. So I don't ever, I try to never take that mindset. If that comes out of me, I'm like, no way. I'm not a victim. I choose to be here. So then I'm alive. I'm choosing I'm, I'm choosing to do what I do. So I think that's really important in a corporation that core means bodies of people, human beings, to never sort of let go and think it's some machine in control, you know, or someone else in control. You're in control. You're the CEO of your own life. You're the CEO of your own job. You choose to come every day. So that's how I approached it and stayed fresh and alive and energetic and never got, you, know, you hear people talk about being burnt out and in the rat race. And I think those are all choices. So just, I choose not, or chose not to go into those words, right? How does that, how does that show itself during the day? So I'm human and therefore I'm human with everyone I work with. I've had the honor of managing teams of 5,000 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people. What I love is motivating and inspiring people uh, to be really successful and to completely like exceed expectations of clients. So what turns me on is having really happy employees that are motivated, delivering value with, with customers who you've exceeded their expectations. So they're really jazzed. And guess what? Your bottom line is looks amazing when that's going on. Um, don't get me wrong. There are many, many days where you have lawsuits and employee problems and customer problems, but it's, it's how you dive into that. I, would remind my team that failing an audit would be a gift, not a real great gift, but let's learn from it. Let's get the maximum learning from it. And guess what you do? The bad things you learn the most from. And customer complaints, we had to read them at our at my direct reports meetings. We would review customer complaints because they the customers tell you where your weak spots are, what's going wrong. And we used to prioritize. Let's we had a customer centricity council that I always ran about what are we going to solve for the customer? And, you know, that just made every day really meaningful and really impactful. And now feeling alive. Yeah. Now it's so interesting. So between the book uh, on boards and advising CEOs uh, or C-suites, what I find is when someone um, either on LinkedIn or you know sends me a note saying your book changed my life or this was extremely helpful, um, I get some pretty amazing uh, LinkedIn messages from people who read the book and share with me uh, what the impact it's had on their life. So that's been very exciting. And when clients say to me, "Wow, every time I meet with you, I feel like renewed or refreshed," or I can see a world differently, like the impact. I think making a difference and helping them in a way that's impactful and contributing to their business is exciting. And now you are talking about, uh, let's say, customer focus. And that's actually part of four pillar management philosophy you have. If you can share a little bit more. So 
operation excellence, uh, focus to customers, other elements? Sure. So uh, in my writing about the four pillar philosophy, uh, which is the customer centricity, um, you know, employee engagement, uh, shareholder return, and that fourth pillar, the operational excellence includes being compliant and doing things that are well done technologically so something doesn't break or have a lot of bugs. So that operational excellence is a pretty big pillar. Those are what I have found in all the different businesses I've run throughout my career, that they're just, um, they're foundational. So if you can come to work every day and say, I need to make a decision. How do I make this decision? How do I prioritize among all the different things I'm supposed to do? Is it right for the customer? Are we delighting the customer? Is it right for the employee to do the thing that we need to do for the customer? Can we operate and do it and deliver it with excellence and it's legal and compliant? And then does it provide the right return for the, our invested capital? If you get those four things right, it's pretty easy to make a decision. I think where a lot of people get stressed on decisions is they might be operating, you know, or optimizing two of those and hurting two of them, or optimizing three of them and hurting one of them. So you could delight the customer, delight the employee, do something with excellence, but make no money, well, you're not gonna stay in business, right? Or you could be making a lot of money, but hurting the customer, you're not gonna stay in business. Or that same thing and hurting the employee, not gonna stay in business. Or delivering it without excellent quality, not gonna all of them don't, to me, the four together is the, the winning prize. You know, there's so many interesting um, kind of learning stories in my career, but one of them that, that I think is something that we talk about but it's different when you live it is um when i took over a business to turn it around you know you come in and sometimes you think a turnaround is about cutting costs and um you sort of start there but actually in that turnaround situation what i saw was the most important thing to fix first was the culture and that surprised me because i and now when I look back on it, I don't know why that would surprise anybody. But if you if you start with the right culture or get the culture where you need it, the other things are much easier to deliver. And so I ended up in my first three weeks in that new role of taking this business to turn it up and turn it around, um, just meeting with all the employees, meeting with different groups, listening and doing a lot of listening to understand what they were focused on. And then I turned it around and spent the next three weeks speaking with them and teaching and telling them where we were going to go and sort of sharing where we needed to go and how we needed to fix it and why. And once I shared the why to get everyone on board and aligned became much easier. And so the turnaround of the culture didn't happen in those six weeks, but the kind of three weeks of just listening and listening, some people, you need to do it you know, much longer. We didn't have a lot of time. And then that three weeks of sort of putting out, um, I put out an all team memo explaining what we had to do and why. And my aha in the three weeks of listening is they had no idea why we were in trouble. Well, it's pretty hard to fix something if your employee base doesn't know why you're in trouble, you know, what went. So then I did a lot of town halls and, and people would say to me like, we never been invited to this many meetings where you're talking to all of us at once. Well, I needed everyone to hear the same thing at the same time. Because if you tell just a few people your directs, for instance, what ends up being talked about in the kitchen 
sounds like telephone, right? Like it's so jumbled and mumbled. So I made sure that I did all team calls, all team videos, all team in-person meetings, like any way I could to keep explaining why we were in trouble, what we were going to do to fix it and how we were going to fix it so that there were never left with sort of fear, right? You can just tell someone what's wrong. Well, that's pretty bad because then where are you going? I always told them where we were going and how we were going to go there. So I'd say my, my big learning in, in, in now, if I reflect on it, my turnarounds has been, it starts and ends with culture. Unfortunately, mm, I wouldn't say that's really where most people's minds go to. You tend to go to the lower hanging fruit, right? Which is let's cut costs, we'll make more money or let's create more revenue. But yes, but if you create more revenue on an unstable platform or you cut costs on an unstable platform, you're just prolonging the pain. So to the question of um, being a female leader, female entrepreneur, or a leader or an entrepreneur, in my humble opinion, um, I'm a leader and I'm an entrepreneur. And I think that I'm lucky in that I don't, I don't feel a need to be a female entrepreneur or a female leader. I am one, I just am. So I, you know, I reflect on those awards of 100 influential women or influential forever. And for me, they were just, I'm an extrovert. So they were just fantastic opportunities to meet uh, 99 other amazing women leaders who I didn't know. And I think that was great. Some of them I did, but most of them I didn't. And because it was true at the time that I was often among a smaller set of people in the room who were female than men. I don't know. I, I see it in some industries still, but you know, in the financial services industry, there's a lot of women in leadership and I'm seeing that everywhere. So I'd say, I really think I'm a leader and an entrepreneur, but my advice would be the same for men or women. And it's possible that uh, one group or the other needs it more at a time. I actually think it's more younger versus older. So maybe when you're younger, you need some advice more than when you're older, but maybe not. And the piece of advice that I always give, and I gave it at a lot of these talks, because you get asked, you know, what's your advice for a younger woman? Um, but I think it applies to younger men too, is be you. And when in doubt, be more of you. And what I mean by that is don't try to be someone else. Don't try to be bigger, tougher, meaner, more serious, more intense, more anything than you are. If you're tough and intense, be that. If that's natural to you, I mean, be nice also. But um, and if you're uh, more reserved and quiet, that's okay too. You don't have to be an extrovert to be a great leader and you don't have to be an introvert to be a great leader. You are you. And if you're a great leader, be you. Vocation versus my avocation. So, for my hobbies or my contributing to society or the other time when I'm not at work, um, I have most of my career and most of my life volunteered and loved doing it. When I started volunteering in San Francisco, I volunteered for an organization called um, JVS or Jewish Vocational Services, which really um, helps at the time often folks coming from other countries 
get roles in the United States. And so I used to volunteer when I was young to do resume uh, counseling and do mock interviews. And I remember I would sit in like these little closets, like janitorial closets at the, the agency the and um, do video interviews so that the candidate often from Russia or from other countries could um, see themselves because it's a very different style to interview in the United States versus someone's home country. And if you're from Asia or certain countries, you might not be as, um, especially from Japan, you might not be as used to selling yourself the way we sell ourselves in the United States. Uh, so I think that was a really, I, I was involved in that organization over 20 years. I ended up over time becoming the president of that organization. It's kind of funny, but started off as a volunteer. So I always volunteer. I volunteered um, over 30 years now. I'm still on multiple uh, boards of nonprofit groups. I've done many different kinds, religious, not religious, arts. I, I think it's important. I love it. It's It reminds you not only of... Um, all the skills that you get in business that these nonprofits can so use. What what is amazing to me is over the years, the amount of experience we have. I often end up on finance committees or investment committees just from my background, but it's it's great. I've, I've learned all about the financials of running a cemetery even when I was on my synagogue board, but there's just so much we can each contribute to our different uh, interests. And I, and I think it's great and it helps with your uh, self-love in a way. You know, on positive mindset, one of the dreams I had probably 10, 12, 13 years ago was I speak a lot. I spoke a lot. Uh, at work events, at, uh, just I would be invited by different organizations to speak. And I would notice that people would stand in line after my talk to like talk to me. And I'd look around and, well, why are all these people standing in line? Well, they all wanted to know, how did I do it? How did I run a major part of a corporation and have a family and kids and volunteer and be engaged in the community and have friends? Because often I would talk about this whole life that I have. And that's what inspired me and why I wanted to write Fit CEO. I wanted to share what my son calls my life hacks. So when you read Fit CEO, so it's it's literally all the ways of how I stay positive, how I think about my time, and the habits that I follow, or really total orchestration of health through kind of habitual discipline around my intention, my commitment, um, where I set my boundaries, how I do and embrace self-care, and then how I make sure it's fun. And so those are the five sections of the book. So the five sections of the book are about commitment and boundaries and intention and self-care and fun or heart. And each chapter is just about two pages and ends with immediate and imperfect action. Because the key is, with each concept, just do it. If you get stuck in sort of procrastination and delay, your joy is dissipated. But if you try it, you might like it. If you don't like it, you try something else. But if you don't do immediate and imperfect action, then you've never even launched. And so um, the book has really been such a key part of sharing my positive mindset 
uh, some people call it growth mindset, but it's a can-do attitude. And things go wrong, but that's okay. You learn from it. so many pieces of advice, but you know, one would be if you want to do it, time box it. If it's really important, time box it. You know, I, I, the number of clients I meet with who are struggling on what is their priority because they get sucked into all the other priorities, I have to remind them if that's really a priority, then block the time on your calendar, aka a boundary intention and commit to it, right? Stick to it. And it sounds so simple, but it is transformative because it's giving yourself permission to spend the time on the thing you say is really important. And then if it's not after you spend the time, what a learning, but most of the time it is. And, and then my clients can really get to the strategic thinking they wanted to do, for instance. I mean, I find most often what goes to the wayside for um, CEOs who are operating and running a business day to day is the thinking about the future and planning their future. and just a few hours a month to block for strategic thinking is a great way to time box it. I have two websites. The one for the book is fitceobook, all one word, fitceobook.com. And there you can see the write-ups about the book and buy it from any vendor, but you can also just go to Amazon and click there. But if you want to local bookstore, they will also get it for you. Um, and then for my business, for my advisory and consulting business, uh, rmkgroupllc.com. And you need the LLC. So rmkgroupllc.com. And there you'll see my bio and some samples of things I've done for clients, my four pillar um, philosophy. But also there is where I post some of the things I've written, including the book, but articles I've written, podcasts I've been on and, and you can hear my thinking. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective and embark on the path to success.